0: Advent, the time leading up to Christmas, is a season of anticipating the coming of Jesus. How can this Christmas be different from past years? What if your heart was filled with hope? Hope that the broken world cannot provide. Love in a world marked by apathy. Joy as Jesus brings us out of sorrow and suffering. Peace, not found in humanity, but only in Jesus. What if this Christmas, you experience Jesus' birth in a new way? Advent, the miracle that changed everything. Good morning. Welcome to Hill Country Bible Church and those joining us online at Steiner Ranch or other venues. We're so grateful to be together and to celebrate the fourth Sunday of Advent. So this is the week that we light the candle of peace, recognizing the angel said that Jesus was coming to bring peace, and so as we celebrate that, we recognize we're, we're about six days away from Christmas, and I'm curious, are you at peace? Amen. Yeah, a few of you are. How's it going? Like, are, you, are you feeling that peaceful, easy feeling, you know, that... Silent night, holy night, all is calm at your house, with your heart, with your people. you ever just wonder, what would it be like if everybody just shut up? Just for a while, like just gave you that peace, you know, Like, like what if all of the 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 media commentators, the politicians, the people on social media, what if the people in your office, maybe the people that live under your roof, would just be quiet for a minute or two? Would that bring peace? Silent night? Some of you are smiling like, oh my goodness, that sounds like heaven. Well, uh, there were a group of monks that lived in a monastery and they thought that, like, if we all take a vow of silence, then we'll have peace. And so they had a vow of silence, and, and the deal was that every year on Christmas Day, they would break the silence by allowing one of the mon- monks to make one sentence statement. And so the year came around, and, and Brother Thomas got up, and it was time for him to make his one-sentence statement, and he just simply said... I believe that the mashed potatoes are delightful with our Christmas roast. And he sat down. 365 days of silence. And the next Christmas, Brother Michael got up and he said, the mashed potatoes are lumpy and I despise them. (laughs) Sat down. 365 days of silence. The next Christmas, it was time for Brother Paul to give his one sentence, and he stood up and he said, I can't stand the constant bickering around here. (laughs) Silence would fix the problem? I don't think so. Now, we live in a world where we understand that peace is somewhat elusive depending on how you define it. Now, if you're looking at things like war or incivility, if you're looking at things like family conflicts or maybe even internal personal turmoil, you know that that's not peaceful. And yet, there is a sense that we're looking for peace whether we're finding it or whether we're not finding it. And here's what's so interesting. Many people come to their celebration of Christmas thinking that if it's a good Christmas, that means like everything goes well, all my circumstances work out, nobody has a health problem, everybody gets to show up, nobody has a fight, there is no conflict, I get all the presents that everybody wanted including my own, and that's going to be a peaceful Christmas. And yet the first Christmas was nothing like that. Now, put yourself in Mary's shoes. Delivering a baby after traveling on a donkey to a town that you didn't know, in a cattle stall with no epidural? Like, think about it. If any of us had experienced what Mary and Joseph experienced at Christmas, in one of our Christmases, we would say that was the worst Christmas ever. Right? So this elusive idea that Christmas ought to be something that just everything goes right, and that makes Christmas peaceful, we may be missing the whole point. In fact, the angels proclaimed something profound, and today we want to look at that because I want you to understand God's plan for peace. So here's what the angel said. The angel said to them, the shepherds, "'Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger.'" Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. So there is a promise of peace here. Now, now here's what I need you to do. Like I'm going to take you down a path of giving you some information from the scripture that I think is going to blow your mind. Change your perspective about Christmas and your understanding of God's ultimate plan for the world. Now, as I do that, I'm especially encouraging uh, teenagers here and young adults to dial in so that you can explain this to your parents later on in the day when they go, Huh? What was he talking about? Okay, So dial in. So there's a promise of peace, and it's interesting because the, the promise of peace seems to unfold in, in, a, in a way that's interesting. There's, it has something to do with people. The peace that's coming has something to do with people, and in contrast to heaven, glory to God in the highest, it has something to do with earth. Okay, So it has something to do with people, and it has something to do with earth. And this is very profound because Jesus is the source of this, the coming of Jesus inaugurates this, Jesus is the one that makes this peace possible, but do those two things happen simultaneously? Is there a peace in heaven and a peace on earth that actually takes place simultaneously? That's an important question to answer. Because it informs what we think about Christmas. So if we take these two concepts, peace to people, peace to men, peace to people, and peace on earth, what does Jesus say about this and what does the Bible say about this? It says, Jesus said this and the Bible says this, at the first advent, the first time Jesus came... When Jesus came to Earth at Christmas, his, Jesus birth Jesus' birth, his death and his resurrection, in that time period, he came to bring peace to people. That was why He came. He came to bring peace to people. But Jesus is coming again. His second advent, his second coming, his return and the establishment of his kingdom, is when He establishes peace on Earth. And if we confuse these two, or we group them together, we actually misunderstand what God says in the Scripture. Now, in order to unpack this, I want to take you to an Old Testament prophecy in Micah chapter 5. And So if you want to follow in your Bibles, you can do that. Or if you just want to follow, I'm going to put the Scripture up here, and I'm going to explain some stuff. Again, hang in there with me, because if you understand this, you understand where we sit in God's plan for peace on earth. Okay? So in Micah chapter 5, there's a prophecy that 700 years before Jesus was born, and here's how it starts. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. Now he's talking about what's taking place as the Babylonians are now surrounding the city of Jerusalem, and the call is to prepare for this siege that's coming. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Now what happens that actually took place in time? As Micah's writing and speaking this prophecy, in just a short period of time after that, the Babylonians would breach the walls of Jerusalem, and the ruler at the time, the king, Zedekiah, would be humiliated that's what that phrase to be struck on the cheek means literally it's the slapping of the face it's humiliation he was going to be humiliated what the Babylonians did in their anger because they didn't surrender and they had a siege against the city and they had to sit there and wait them out what they did was they brought Zedekiah out and in front of his eyes killed all of his sons he had to watch the murder of his sons and then they put out his eyes, they blinded him. So the last visual memory would be the death of his sons, and then they carried him and all the people into captivity in Babylon. So that's the prophecy of what was going to happen at the time. But then we read this, and this may sound familiar to you, but in contrast to the devastation, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Hmm. Who is going to be born in Bethlehem? Who is going to become the king of Israel and who has an origin or an existence from literally the Hebrew here is before the ability to count the number of days who come from time immeasurable that would have to be someone divine. That would have to be God Himself. Who is going to be born in Bethlehem? Who will be God Himself? Okay, the prophecy goes on. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So, after the birth of this Messiah, this coming one, this king, there's going to be a time when Israel is abandoned. When she's dissolved and abandoned, and then finally, in the final labor, when Israel is reborn and all the brothers are rejoined, all the nation of Israel comes back together, we see this person emerge again. It goes on to say, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely For then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. What's he talking about? The regathering of the nation of Israel, a ruler that's going to come. This is the divine one that was born in Bethlehem, and this ruler will bring peace to the whole world, to all the nations, a universal peace. Okay? So, with that in mind, let's go back to what the angels said again. There's going to be peace to people in the first coming of Jesus, his birth, his death, and his resurrection. And then there's going to be a time of abandonment where the nation of Israel will be scattered, but then they're going to be brought back together at the return of Jesus, and then the peace on earth will come, okay? You got that in your head? So if you're struggling a little bit to get that in your head, let me just tell you, like every Friday, I have a group of people, uh, most of them staff, but some lay people, too, that come in, and I kind of walk through my sermon with them, and then they tell me, that doesn't make any sense. That's kind of boring. I don't like that story. And sometimes they say, hey, that was really good. Anyway, they give me feedback, and here's what they said. Nobody's going to get this. (laughs) You need a chart. You got to have a chart. So, folks, this is my chart. Now, in the prophecy, we sit in this period of time. Jesus came to the earth, and he came to bring peace to people, and Jesus is going to return to the earth, peace on earth. Now, let's take these one at a time, and let me walk you through the Scripture, and let's explain this. So, in Jesus' first coming... Jesus brought the peace we desperately need, and that's peace with God, peace to men. When Jesus came the first time at Christmas in his life, he came to bring peace to us, and that peace is with God between us and God. In fact, let's look at the story so in Matthew chapter 2, the story of the wise men coming is very, very profound. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of Herod the king, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So we're familiar with this part of the story, right? This, this part of the story, like we know. What's interesting about this part is the people who are coming. These are magi... Now, the Magi were people who were scholars in both religion and astronomy. And they're coming from the east, which would be modern-day Iraq. So they're they're making their journey from the east across the desert. Um, They don't have Dodge caravans. They had camel caravans. So this was not an easy trip. But they're coming because of something. And what do they say? They say... We saw his star in the east and have come to worship the baby, the king of the Jews. Now, you might ask yourself the question, well, like, what does all that mean? Why a star that they've seen in the sky? They, they look at that and they associate it somehow with a king being born in Israel. Like, where does all this come from? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, we don't have documents from them as to what they were looking at, but it's very possible because there was a prophecy 1,400 years earlier from a prophet that was prophesying against Israel, and in the middle of his prophecy, he makes this statement. And here's what he says in Numbers. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Interesting prophecy. Like I see someone who's going to have the scepter. Now what's the scepter associated with? Being a king, right? I see a king coming. I see him, but he's not now. It's not a near period of time. He's holding a scepter, and there's a star associated with Jacob. There's a star that somehow is pointing to him, and he's coming from the line of Jacob, which means he's a Jew. And so the Magi are saying, hey, we saw his star, We're looking for the king of the Jews that has been born, and where do they go? They go to the city of Jerusalem because you would expect that a king would be born in the capital city. And they're asking the question, what's interesting is nobody says, what in the world are you talking about? That's the most ridiculous thing of all. In fact, actually the people there at the time took this very seriously. We see as Matthew continues, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. It it, it makes sense that he would be disturbed because he is the ruling king. He doesn't have a son they're a child that was just born and he was actually one of the most evil, vile people that's ever lived. As an overlord, he regularly killed family members that he thought might be interested in his throne. This was Herod, that's how paranoid he was. In fact, get this, he knew nobody would mourn him at his death, so he ordered his soldiers upon his death to go through the city and kill the most beloved citizens in the city so that at least somebody would be crying when he died. So, you can see that when King Herod is disturbed, all of Jerusalem is disturbed too. Like, don't get Herod upset. And and when he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ, that's the Messiah, the promised one, where the Christ was to be born. And you'd think all the scholars would be like, how would we know that? But that's not what they do they open to the prophecy we just looked at in Micah chapter 5 and they say to him, In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. They go right back to that 700-year-old prophecy that we just read, and they say, we know exactly where he's going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. For those of you who are skeptics, This is just one of almost a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament that detail things like exactly where Jesus was going to be born. Now, some people have raised the, the argument about these prophecies. Well, probably Jesus knew the prophecies and he tried to kind of live them out in such a way that it would look like he was the Messiah. But he wasn't born here how do you make yourself be born in the right place this is just one line of evidence to explain why billions of people on the planet believe in Jesus and follow Jesus because like this is just one more of those examples anyway they know exactly where Jesus is going to be born and and and, and Herod takes this seriously. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And we find out in the rest of the story, his intent is to try to kill the baby. So he wants to know like, exactly when the star appeared because that's the time frame in which he needs to exterminate any male that was born in that region during that period of time. So he's dead serious on this happening. Now we know the rest of the story that the Magi make their way. They find Jesus They worship him, and then an angel warns them, like, don't go back and tell Herod. And at the same time, an angel warns Joseph, you need to go to Egypt and get away because Herod's going to kill the kids, which he does in the area. So Jesus escapes. Nothing like silent night, holy night, all is calm. So what is the peace that arrived at Christmas and played itself out? the angel said, a Savior has been born to you. Jesus in his first coming came to be a Savior, to save us from our sins. So when we think about Jesus' first coming, Jesus came into the world to give us the peace that we desperately needed, and that's peace with God. Unfortunately today, most people don't think about sin. They don't think about themselves as sinners. They, they, don't, they don't even value that or understand that concept. I, I watched an interview this week, kind of one of those person-on-the-street interviews where a person's going out and talking to multiple people. And, and, and in the interview, the footage that I watched, he would approach people, most of them were on a college campus, but in different places, and he just simply started with the question, do you believe that you're a good person? And every single person that he interviewed said, well, of course I'm a good person. And then he did something that's really fun. He started asking them about specific things, starting with, have you ever told a lie? And it was interesting just to kind of watch the faces turn. Have you ever told a lie? And he got on the range from, well, yeah, I have but I never really intended to hurt anybody. Well, you mean you tended to deceive people, but you didn't intend them to be hurt by your deception or not knowing the truth. And pretty soon people were going, yeah, I guess I've told like thousands of lies in my lifetime and, and, and people are starting to acknowledge that. And then he, he asked the next question, he says, like, have you ever stolen anything? And it's like, no, I've never stolen anything. He said, well, have you ever downloaded something from the internet that was copyrighted? Yeah, and from there just went on to talk about ways that we take things that we don't belong to us, and people, same people were like, and then he asked the question, like, have have you ever lusted or or coveted somebody else that you don't have the right to covet? And and everybody's like, well, no, no, never did, did, well, you ever looked at pornography? Well, yeah. In fact, one guy, he asked him if he ever lied, and he said, no, I never lied. And he said, have you ever looked at porn? And the guy said, well, yeah. And he said, and you never lied? Because he just lied about it. So, I mean, it's so interesting just watching people move through those conversations, when asked about specific things, by the end, each person that was being interviewed, each person said, well, I guess I'm not good, but I'm just like everybody else. Precisely. None of us are good. Like, when we ask the question, am I good, we're talking in relative terms. We're looking at other people that are worse than us, and we're saying, because we're better, therefore we're good. And that's just talking about the sins that we commit, the sins of commission, like the things that we choose to do. What about the good that we have opportunity to do for other people that we don't do? That's the sins of omission. Like when I have a chance to help someone, to listen to someone, to invest in someone, and I choose not to do, does that make me basically a good person? You see, the Bible is very clear that all of us, every one of us, me, you, all of us, have sinned and fallen short of God's righteous standards. We have not lived up to the righteousness that God created us to live up to. And we've replaced it with our own selfish appetites and desires, and we've all done it. And that's why we all universally have a tendency to to overlook it and to say, well, no, that's not really true because we're all this way. But when Jesus came, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, That whoever believes in him would not perish, coming under the judgment of God for our sin, but have eternal life. That's the peace with God that God promised in Jesus' first coming to earth. That you actually can have a relationship with God where the sins that you've committed have been forgiven because Jesus died to take your punishment and my punishment, so a just and holy God accepts the punishment of Jesus in place of what I deserve, and therefore we are granted forgiveness, and our relationship with God is restored. That's peace with God. That's what we desperately need, and that's why Jesus came the first time, to give us that peace with God. And if you as a person have never put your faith in Jesus, just admitted, God, I realize, like, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I violated your law. And I believe, Jesus, that you came and you died in my place. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Be my Lord and lead me. If you've never put your trust in Jesus and invited him to forgive you, you don't have peace with God. You are still in a broken relationship with God, and the consequences are dire. There is no peace for you at Christmas because until you have that restored relationship with God, you stand guilty before a righteous God. For those of you who have, I just challenge you, challenge you, do not worship the celebration of Christmas, expecting that to bring you peace when... The real celebration at Christmas, no matter how bad your year is gone, no matter how many losses you've had, no matter how many hardship you've been through, the real celebration of Christmas is that you have been forgiven, that Jesus has come for you and given you eternal life. And it doesn't matter if your Christmas is as hard as Mary's was when she brought Jesus into the world. There's still a cause to celebrate, because you have what you desperately needed, and that's peace with God. Now, when Jesus comes again in his second advent, he's going to bring what we truly want to see happen on earth, and Jesus' second coming will bring the peace we desperately want, and that's peace on earth desperately want that peace on earth. And, and what most people are, are doing today is they're thinking, well, Jesus, if you're doing your job, then there should be peace on earth right now. And we misunderstand God's plan. In fact, let me walk back through it really quickly from uh, Micah chapter 5, and I want you to see it again. Starting in verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. That's the prophecy of the coming of Jesus the first time. But then we find out after Jesus ascends to heaven, there's a period of time that we call the abandonment. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. We live during this time. Now, here's what's so cool about this. In 70 AD, so, Jesus dies around 33 AD. In 70 AD, the prophecy Jesus predicted that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed actually came true. Titus sacked the city, destroyed the temple. In 135, the Romans came back again and they dispersed the Jews all over the world because of another rebellion. And like from that point forward, throughout history, the nation of Israel has been scattered all over the planet. And throughout that period of history, almost 2,000 years went by during this abandonment, and the Jewish people have been persecuted in terrible ways and scattered all over. And people would read this prophecy and go, well, I don't know how that's going to be true, that there's going to be a, a moment of birth when the nation is reborn and the people are brought back together. And then in 1948... The impossible happened. Israel became a state, a nation, and Jewish people from all over the world have been regathering in the nation of Israel. That is profound. So, a week ago, Friday, I had coffee with one of my Jewish friends. He was actually doing a fundraiser on me uh, for the Jewish National Fund, trying to raise money for the infrastructure, building the infrastructure in the nation so it can continue to be sustainable in the nation of Israel. That's his passion. He was talking about how much he loved it, and I shared my passion with him, Jesus, and how much I love Jesus, and how he needs Jesus, and I need to give to his fund. He He needs to get Jesus. So we're we're having this conversation. It was a great conversation. And he he wasn't opposed to it at all. In fact, he he loves Christians because Christians have been so supportive of the nation of Israel. He's just so happy with us. But anyway, in the course of that conversation, he was explaining the regathering of the nation of Israel. And I walked him through the prophecies that Jesus actually said this was going to happen. So folks... The regathering of the nation has happened, which means that we don't know when Jesus is going to return, but it feels an awful lot like after 2,000 years of scattering, we could be in the last days. It may be the last days on the planet. I, I, I can't predict. I don't know. No one knows, but this could be the last days. So the abandonment, but then we find out after the return, he... It's talking about Jesus, the Messiah will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Universal global kingdom that scripture talks about, and he will be their peace. Now, it's important to understand that peace is not going to come because of a movement. It's not going to come because of a treaty. It's not going to come about because of a cause. Peace only comes about because Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes back to earth and reestablishes that peace. Now, it's important for us to know that because today we see a lot of people who are compassionate people who are, are thinking, like, I need to go join a cause because we need to fix the world. And this utopian instinct is bubbling up in so many people. In fact, many people are actually blaming the church for the problems in the world, or at least saying that the church isn't doing enough, and therefore they're looking for outside groups and sources to bring about global peace. Now, folks, you can study history. We've watched different groups and movements and ideologies different forms of economics and government form, thinking that this will be the one, this will be the utopian idea that fixes all the problems of humanity, that's taken place. But so many people, even young people, leaving the church going like, I want to go out and make a difference in the world and the church isn't doing it. Well, there's no question that we as the people of Jesus can continue to do more. There's no question about that. But at the same time, this impulse of utopia kind of permeates our society. I think it's best probably pictured in the song that John Lennon made famous, wrote, the song Imagine, where he imagines this sharing, this brotherhood of people, this utopia. And he basically says, as long as if we could just get rid of religion, that that would be way it would work. So, a world without religion would become a utopian world. Now, that's interesting on a number of levels. One is that in the 20th century, we had major countries in the world outlaw religion, like the former Soviet Union, and became one of the most brutal uh, death-killing countries that has ever existed in the history of the world. There's some of those that are still existing today and going forward with an anti-religion bias. But one of the things that was really, really phenomenal is in 2010, at the 70th anniversary of John Lennon's birth... um, a group of people were gathering in New York not far from the place where he, was, where he was murdered and they were celebrating, singing his songs, talking about his utopian dream. At the same time on the other coast in L.A., the largest atheist association in the United States got together and they were having their annual conference. And, and the reporters uh, talking about that conference said, this was one of the most contentious groups of people in the most contentious conferences they'd ever been to. There were factions within the atheist association about how to move forward. And literally, they weren't sitting down in rational thought talking through things. They were almost coming to blows. In fact, the LA Times reported that like people were physically, with each other in their conflict well i thought no religion no god everybody gets along like we know that's not true it is going to require the supernatural work of the god of the universe in the person of jesus christ to bring about the peace and it's coming in the future And so we live in a time where our calling is to bring as many people into the kingdom as possible to share that universal future by sharing the good news of the gospel that we're living in a period of time where people can be forgiven and be made right with God because Jesus is going to establish universal peace. Now what's so interesting when we think about that is that here we sit at Christmas with the promise that God is going to bring peace to people, and he already has. But we're waiting for him to bring peace to earth. So how do we celebrate in the tension? Well, I came across some thoughts on this. By a guy who was at Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan in 2008 during the height of the war. Leslie Bishop, a psychiatrist and a military reservist, was stationed there. And it was Christmas Eve 2008 and he was reporting on this. He actually wrote an article in Christianity Today about it, uh, the contrast that he saw. So as he's watching, um, he sees military vehicles pulling up on the airfield. As they're pulling up on the airfield, he realizes that they're coming up with a steel casket draped in the American flag, and he knows that there's a family in the United States who would be having the worst Christmas of their possible experience, bringing home a family member who lost their life in the war. But at the same time, as he made his way across the base He saw exactly the opposite. A a group of service people were were standing with candles, singing Christmas carols at the top of their voice, and the amphitheater was beginning to fill up with people that were going to attend the Christmas pageant show, and the chapel was also filling up with people that were going to attend the Christmas Eve service, and all of these things were going on simultaneously. The, The war, and the death, and the sadness, and the celebration happening at the same time. No peace on earth, and yet, Jesus has come into the world. Here's what he writes. After watching the casket be unloaded from the military vehicle, I find myself walking along the main avenue of Bagram Airfield, all is different. Soldiers holding candles, belling out Christmas carols, luminaries along the walkway, the auditorium where the cheerful, uniformed men and women enter for the concert blocks away, the chapels filling, all these things happening. He says, Jesus did not come to just to provide an occasion to sing carols, drink toasts, feast, and exchange gifts. That's not why he came. But we are right to do these things because he came even as soldiers die and families grieve. It's right to celebrate. In his coming, he brought joy and peace, the joy that overcomes our sorrow, and the only kind of peace that ultimately matters. It's the peace of which the end of all wars, terrible as they are, merely one token It's the peace that means the long war between the heart and its maker is over. It's a peace treaty offered in Bethlehem and signed in blood on Calvary. Bishop concludes, so joy to the world and to every celebrating or grieving or hurting soul in it. The Lord has come. Let heaven and nature And even those who stand, watch with lighted candles in the shadow of death. May they sing. Because Jesus has come to bring the peace that we so desperately need. Peace with God. We sing. Because Jesus is coming to bring the peace that we so desperately need. Peace on earth. We celebrate. Christmas is a time to celebrate Jesus. And when we celebrate Jesus, we have joy in the confusion, we have joy in the conflict, and we have joy in our Savior. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, My prayer is that for just a moment we could let go of our expectations and embrace your realities. Peace with you. Eternal peace. That's something to celebrate. Hope, knowing that you're coming again. And Jesus will establish his kingdom. That's something to look forward to. May these truths so overcome our hearts and minds that this Christmas will be the best we've ever experienced. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.